As we take our Bibles and we turn to the book of Colossians, you're going to see in just a moment exactly why we picked the songs that we did. I'm going to ask those youngsters, three years of age through the sixth grade, to be dismissed at this time and to head out the back of the auditorium to their junior church places where they will be able to have their classes at their, their level. I'm going to ask those remaining in the auditorium, those at home, join me in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue in this series on Colossians, we're in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at a particular section of scriptures here. But let me start off telling you a little bit about a town that I, where I was in college, Owatonna, Minnesota. That, excuse me, that they had a restaurant there, a restaurant chain, one of those that was called Big Boy. You familiar with this restaurant chain? They have them around? Okay. Oftentimes they have this statue, this figure of a big boy, like this character out front who is about the size of, you know, typically one of us. And in that town of Oatana, it was very, very, very common that at least two, three times, especially during graduation time, that big boy would disappear from his pedestal outside the restaurant. He might show up somewhere in town in a few days. He might be dressed in some different clothing. He might even at one time, he showed up at the police station on the front stoop. But he's, the big thing was taking Big Boy, and it, was a, it became a, a game within the community of where would Big Boy be found, looking for, you know, where's Waldo, where's Big Boy, type thing. Now, he's not the only one that gets stolen. There is an article that came in the New York Times a couple of years back about how in Minnesota there was a rash of stealing baby Jesuses from the manger at Christmas time. And in fact, this article went on to talk about that Minnesota is not the only place, and it's happening so many places that they even have a title for this. Stolen baby Jesus syndrome. That people were just taking these statues from different mangers and different people's yards, things like that. There was one family down in Florida that their statue of Jesus, just the baby Jesus, was $1,800. And they had it there, and two years in a row it got stolen, and they were tired of losing baby Jesus. So they put a GPS inside the statue so that the next year when it was stolen, they tracked down and went to the very house where it was taken from. Another family decided that what they wanted to do in Eureka Springs, they wanted to make sure nobody would steal their baby Jesus, so they put him attached with chain to a 200-pound cement block. Came out, the block plus the baby Jesus was all taken. Okay, and so you have these different things. Now, sometimes does it happen on a day or on a whim? We understand that. Is it a prank for some sororities? Yeah, we understand that that may happen. It also has happened that there are some who purposely take it because they want to deface, they want to speak against Christianity and Christ. In fact, there are occasions where the police have gotten involved and they have found cultic groups, satanic groups, that have taken it because of their animosity towards Jesus Christ. Now, you have that happening. You have people stealing Jesus. But what might be worse is when it comes to Christianity, Christian churches, so-called religious institutions when they take Jesus right out of the church, right out of the system. That is exactly what Paul is talking about when he writes the Colossians. There was people within the church that they were trying to export Jesus. They were hijacking or stealing the doctrines, the teachings, the person of Jesus. And he has to address it. He has to talk to them. And in fact, in the letter, he is writing because there's two major groups that have infected the church with their teachings. One is the Judaizers who are teaching things different. They are taking the grace of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, and they're stealing it away. And they're saying, you need to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also have to do good works. Another group that was infecting the church were the Gnostics. The Gnostics were basically ta taking the teachings, the uh, theology of Jesus, and they were hijacking it, they were stealing it. Let, let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. You're there in Colossians, you're in chapter 1, but hold your finger there and jump to chapter 2. It might be on the same page like it is in my Bible. Look down to verse 8, where he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after tradition of man, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Go a little bit further in the chapter. He talks about in verse 16, let no man therefore judge you because they're changing the grace of Christ into eating meats or drinks in respect to a holy day or a new moons or Sabbath days. Look down to verse 18. Some have actually replaced Jesus by saying, let no man beguile you of your reward in the voluntary humiliation and worshiping of what? Of angels. And so there are people that are saying, let's kick Jesus out. Let's change this. 
And they're all of a sudden, they're, they're giving a new teaching and not talking about the Christ that is supposed to be exalted according to scriptures. Now, they're not the only ones. There are different groups today in America that have changed the teachings of Jesus Christ. There's the groups like the Mormons who have said that God in heaven has a wife and they have copulated, they have produced all kinds of spirit babies. The spirit baby that was first born was Jesus. And all of us were birthed in heaven by this physical copulation of God and his wife. And when we are conceived on earth, our spirit baby is sent down to all of a sudden the mother's womb. And that's us now. And the only difference between you and me and Jesus is he's the eldest. He's the oldest. And outside of that, we're the same as Jesus in many, many ways. He's just evolved to his Godhead, which we can evolve to in time. In fact, the second brother born into that union was Satan. And Satan had, an, had suggested that he would be the savior of the world. And he said if he became, God allowed him to be the savior of the world and to come and to be here in this world, he would do it and make sure everyone got saved. He would basically force salvation. God didn't want that, so God went with Jesus' plan, and then Jesus was the savior. None of that fits scripture, folk. That is a stealing of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. We have another modern Gnostic group that says that Jesus was created. He wasn't God. He became God-like. But he was created just like you and I were created. There's a beginning of his time. And they use this very passage to support their idea. And we'll show you where they're errant in just a moment. But that whole idea is that Jesus was the first of the emanations, the spirit beings created. And then he created and it went down the line. That is very similar to what the Gnostics were teaching in Paul's day. And Paul writes and says, this is wrong. This is wrong. There are even some more, more commonly accepted groups that have replaced Jesus as the mediator between God and men that, that Paul writes about in Timothy, that there is one mediator. They have replaced it with a second mediator. They have even declared in Vatican Council too that Mary is advocate, helper, and mediator or mediatrix. That's replacing Jesus. That's going contrary to what Paul is talking about. What good might be worse yet is if churches like ours who believe in Jesus, who teach of Jesus, but we push him out the door because we don't want him to have control. We don't want him to come and stir things up. And Paul is writing to the believers and saying, listen, this is wrong. This is wrong. It is wrong for you and I or any group, any religious gathering to make Jesus prominent and not preeminent. There is a huge difference. It is, it is okay and I guess good to say Jesus is prominently spoken about. He is prominently displayed. We, we use his name in our title, but we don't give him preeminence. What do I mean by that? Exactly what Paul meant in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 18. In Colossians 1 verse 18, in the middle of this paragraph, he is talking about the idea of don't just make Jesus prominent. Part of your teachings make him preeminent. He says, literally, that he says, in all things, we want to make sure that Jesus might have preeminence. Literally, it reads, he might become the preeminent one. He might become. Oh, by the way, that might become has the idea of permanently put in this position. Not just for this week, but permanently considered the preeminent person. When we start tearing it down, what does preeminent mean? It has the idea is to be in a position above all others. To be the exalted one. To be the primary one. And in this idea, it's the idea of Jesus is to be considered the greatest. Oh, I, I know we use this term in sports. It threw me off when I first heard it a couple years ago. Who's the goat? I always thought the goat was something terrible, something bad. But now it has become who's the greatest of all time. Oh, I remember years ago in boxing when Ollie was, I am the greatest, I'm the greatest. And he had no hesitation to declare that. Since then, we have others who are considered who's the greatest, who's the greatest, who's the greatest in the realm of sports. My friend, you and I who claim to be Christ ones, 
We must make sure that we are saying, declaring, living that Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. And there's a reason for that. He is. Now, we still got to pause and say, okay, what would that mean in our lives? If we truly believe that Jesus is the greatest, he is to get preeminence, how would that affect what we do? How would that affect our everyday life? I know how it affects this ministry. This, that means that in this ministry, Jesus Christ must be worshipped preeminently. That we bow the knee before him. That we declare, blessed be the name. That we sing, he is king, he is king, he is Lord, he is God. I understand what that, how that application. And I understand as well why some of you have asked me this question. Why aren't we talking more about what's going on politically? Why aren't we talking about the rights of, of Americans? Because that's not the message I'm called to preach. I'm called to preach a message that Jesus Christ saves. That Jesus Christ is, this is the preeminent message. This isn't to be a political rally. This is to be a worship center. Now, can we talk about those things? Sure. But preeminently, Christ has got to be our message. Christ has got to be the focus of our worship, of our message, preeminently. He should be the first one we turn to when we have difficulties. Who is it in your life? Who do you preeminently turn to when you're bothered, when you're upset? Does he have prominence or preeminence in your life? You ask yourself this question, whose counsel do you want to hear first and foremost? You have to ask your question, who do you seek to please, to serve? Christ, your boss. Your co-workers, your friends. Preeminence plays out is, who do you turn to to have spiritual blessings and answers to prayer? Do you turn to yourself? God, you owe me this because of who I am. God, you should favor me because of what I do. That's giving Christ prominence, but is it preeminence? How does it play out when you are trying to live your daily life? We, we are told in this land and in this country, be yourself. And I understand where that comes from. You do too. We understand the value of that. But more importantly, we are to be like Christ. Who do you emulate in the way you want to pattern your life? Your words. Who dictates to you how you should be growing? How you should be speaking and treating other people? I read in my Bible that like as Christ, we are to love as Christ. Our husbands are to treat their wives like Christ. He is to be our example. He is to have that much preeminence that in my conduct towards my wife, he is the rule and the order, not my own feelings or emotions. Is he preeminent Is he or just prominent in your life? When it comes to where you turn for financial advice, do you run to Jesus Christ? When it comes to your schedule and your events and how you're dictating your life, who dictates what you do, when you do it, as far as the times you spend. As far as commands, is he prominent in your life, but not preeminent because certain commands you choose not to do? You won't get baptized. He's prominent, but he's not preeminent. You won't share the gospel. He's prominent, but he's not preeminent. You won't work, you work where, you, as a parent of training those kids, he's prominent, but not preeminent. Do you see where Paul is going with this? Paul is bringing Colossians to the everyday life of the 20th century, 21st century believer and saying not just in deed or in, in doctrine, but in deed we make Christ preeminent. And as we go through this paragraph that he's talking about, this morning I want to just deal with the first reason why. This evening I'll still deal with the second reason why. The first reason is because Jesus is supreme. He is supreme. Watch how he dissects the verse, or we dissect what Paul wrote. Watch how he explains Jesus should be given preeminence because of how great he is. Because of how supreme he is. And we'll look at it this way. He talks in this text, and we'll, we'll do the gap that we stopped at last week. Verses 13 and 14, he, we mentioned last week, he says, Jesus is the supreme redeemer. 
He's the one that provides salvation. Remember, they have people coming in the church saying, there's something else added to Jesus. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Jesus is it. Let's, let's remind ourselves, verse 13. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness, has translated us in the kingdom of heaven, in whom, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And we talked about this last week. So let me just race over it. Two words in the passage, redemption and the word forgiveness. They have the idea of to buy off the auction block so as to set free, to cast our sin far away from us. Remember, we talked about how it's the uh, concept of getting sin away from us, put in the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west, that Jesus, he's declaring, Jesus is the only one that does this, not baptism, not keeping all the rituals and the food diets and observing the feast days, not going to some other angel or spirit being. It's Jesus it's Jesus is Paul's message. You know, in history, whether people want to change our American history or not, okay, in history, the great emancipator was Abraham Lincoln in our country. He's the one because the Emancipation Proclamation under his tenure. May I suggest to you who are born-again believers, who is our greatest emancipator? It's Jesus Christ. He's the one who freed you and me from the bondage of sin and set us free. He's the one that freed us from the damnation that we deserve and set us free. He's the one that cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and will not bring them up. It's Jesus Christ. I was reading an account about an individual that he was a famous doctor. Scottish in the British Empire, that, that James Young Simpson was one who did a lot of development of medical field. He brought in the hospital, he started, brought in midwives, started sanitation processes, first to deal with chloroform. And they asked him at a lecture late in his life, they asked him, what, was, what would you consider your greatest discovery that you ever made? Here's his answer. To a group of scientists and people who were in his realm, here's the, the quoting from him as it was written, his greatest per- discovery that he made as this renowned scientist. My greatest discovery was to find out I was a sinner and Jesus Christ saves all sinners who repent and call upon him to be their savior. That is truth. That is a wise man. That he made Christ to be given the preeminence even in that situation. Now, Jesus Christ is supreme, not only because he is redeemer, but watch the text. He goes on and he starts talking about different things Jesus has done that qualifies him as getting preeminence. He goes on, he says, he's the revealer of God. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God. If you start dissecting this, you have to remember the people of that day, this was very common. It's even today, philosophers today. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? From the spiritual realm, we would, we would rephrase those questions to say, how do we get to know God? How do, we, how do we find this God who created us? How do we find God's will for our life? You know, how are we able to pray and communicate with this God? Because we accept the idea that we are creatures created by this God. And here Paul answers it. He says, you want to get to know God? Do you go to some spirit being? Do you go to some Gnostic teacher and he says, I will reveal God to you? He says, no, no, no. You, you know who you go to? You make Christ preeminent. You go to Jesus Christ because he is, and he literally says, he is the icon. He is the icon of God. That's the word. You understand what that word means? This is the stamped image. This is the replica in coins. Bible days, even today, there's, there's images there. He says, Jesus is the exact image of God. When he came, he represented and revealed God for who God exactly is. Now, some of you are sitting here and saying, well, I don't, I don't get it. We are made in the image of God. True. We have personality, intellect, emotion, will. Yes, now that we've been uh, into, brought into existence, we have an eternality to us. True, we are made in the image of God, but notice the words that are different here. We are made in the image of God. Did you look at the word? It says in this passage, Jesus is the image of God. He is far greater in showing God than we are. We are just this, this picture. Jesus is God. He is God incarnate. In fact, do you remember what he says in Hebrews talking about Jesus and how he reveals God. The writer of Hebrews said, who being, being, 
the brightness of his glory, the exact imprint, the express image of his person. If, if you want to see how Jesus talked about this, go to John chapter 14. Hold your finger here. In John chapter 14, this is the setting where Jesus is in that Last Supper. Please turn there and, and follow where Jesus makes a comment that, that, that puts this together. In John chapter 14, at that Last Supper, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And as he's saying, am I leaving? He says, you know, be not troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I go to prepare a house for you. And if I go and prepare, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And he's going on. And then, all of a sudden, one of the disciples asks the question. And he says, Lord, if you go away, how do we know where to, where, how to get to you? And Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now look at what he goes on and adds to that. Jesus says, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. And Philip scratches his head and says, the Lord, I don't understand. He says, why don't you just show us the father and it'll be satisfactory to us. We'll be able to handle anything. Jesus says, have I been so long time with you and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen who? The father. And he goes on, and how do you say, show us the Father? His point is, I am the express image. I am the icon of God. I am God in the flesh. I reveal God to you. And his idea is, he's the real God of heaven. Paul's putting an exclamation to this point. Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is not a knockoff duplicate of God. There's a preacher who was writing an article. He said that we, there in New York where he started a church several years ago, people from his relatives, in-laws that would come from, you know, the non-big cities would come and visit New York and they'd be so enamored by the hustle and bustle of New York City. He said, so we would take them out in the town one evening and it always, all the time, we'd end up towards the same spot. We'd end up in Chinatown and there we'd eat something and then we'd hit those little markets, those off-street markets where you can buy a lot of knockoff items. He said, every time relatives come, we we end up in Chinatown and every time they buy something. The one thing that every relative's family, one at least one bought, was a Rolex watch. A knockoff of the Rolex watch. They would get this fabulous watch for $25. He says, and every single one of them within two weeks would contact me back and say, it was a piece of junk, it didn't last. My friend, Jesus is not a piece of junk that doesn't last. He's not a knockoff. He, Paul is saying he's the real McCoy. He is God, revealing God in the flesh. But not only, and he goes on, not only is he redeemer, not only is he revealer, but he's creator. Watch what he says on the next, the next phrase. In verse 15, he goes on, he says, the, he says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he's before all things. Now he's talking not about just Jesus' supremacy in relationship to us, He's not talking about Jesus' supremacy in his relationship to God. He's talking about Jesus' supremacy in relationship to all creation. And he says several things here that you may even want to mark in your Bible to help see what he's talking about. The firstborn of every creature, some of you immediately are going to do and go to the idea that the Jehovah Witnesses jump to. Firstborn means he had a beginning. That word definitely means birth. That definitely means to be the oldest. Well, that's true. If you were understanding your Bible, it was, if you're saying it was written in English with modern English understanding. But the Bible wasn't written in English. And it wasn't written with modern English comprehensions. It was written in a different language with what they understood at that time. And so when he uses the term that he uses, which we will give you here all the different details... He is using a term that sometimes it could be the oldest that was birthed. Sometimes. But not all the time. Sometimes firstborn had the idea of a title of the most important one. The most important one. Not the oldest or the, the first ever to be. No, it means the most important one. Here, let me give you an illustration. The nation Israel is called by God the firstborn of nations. Was, na was Israel the very first nation ever to be organized? 
No. But is it, in God's mind, the most important one? Yes, firstborn. We even have that used of Jacob with Esau. Jacob wasn't the oldest. He was, Esau is the older one. It's used with Ephraim over Manasseh. Manasseh was the older brother. But who is the one that's getting that special recognition? You even have this phrase of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in the book of Psalms. He's the firstborn of kings. Was Jesus the very first king ever to walk upon the earth as far as in his position of declaring, I am king? Not physically. There were preceding kings before he was birthed. The, the Jews at the time of Jesus used firstborn in relation to books. They called their book, the Torah, what we call their scriptures, they called it the firstborn of books. Does that mean no writing in history prior to the Jews having the Torah? We know that's not true. All it means, firstborn, at times is this is the most important. It has nothing to do with birth or beginning. It's a title that's given to this is the most prominent one. This is the preeminent one. The preeminent whatever. If you really want to say, okay, he really meant to say first created, there's an entire different term he would have used. And we give you that term. So, if we back up and say, okay, understanding the way God used the term, firstborn of Christ, he's the most preeminent. Why? Why is he to be the, the one who is held up as the most important? Because, for, look at your English, it even makes sense. He is the firstborn. For, he goes on, he talks about that idea, by him were all things created. Now, watch how the wording plays out. And again, I'm taking it back into the original because there is a different sense here than our English that I want to make sure you get. The different sense that that phrase, by him were all things created, literally in him. In him, emphatic on the him. In him, the idea is that he is the designer. He is the one who came up with this. He is involved as being the one who is the intelligent design behind creation. In him, all things in heaven. All things including the spirit world. All, and, he, and he elaborates and talks about those angels and principalities and uses the different terms. Because the church people were hearing from the Gnostics that different spirits, you know, they came into being on their own. And he's saying that's not true. Jesus made all these spirits. Jesus made the ones that you're trying to run to, Gabriel or Michael or somebody else, and Jesus is over them. He should be preeminent. He should be the one exalted, not those spirit beings. Why? He created them. He's greater than them. He goes on to highlight this, to put an exclamation point. He says, they were created by him. That's your next phrase that, that he emphasizes again. Not only who designed it, but that phrase at, that in, at the end of verse 16. Where all things were created by him or through him. And then he goes on, and for him. That is, for his pleasure, for his glory. That's why all is created. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. He makes that comment, and then he adds, and he is before all things. He is far greater than the angels. Oh, you should listen to me. I'm the preacher. This is the Gnostic. I'm the preacher. I know better than you. I have this, I have this, this unique in, insight into God's mind, and I can tell you exactly what... And he says, uh-uh. Jesus is the revealer of God. And by the way, Jesus is way over that preacher who's trying to dominate you in this Gnostic uh, belief. Jesus is supreme. He's the creator. He's exalted. Can, can, we just, can we just put something to rest? What is clearly assumed and applied in this passage are these thoughts. The world was created. It did not evolve. Creation is a reality. I understand that it is a popular teaching that we evolved, and this is almost accepted as fact, Remember, it's the evolution theory. Okay? But the reality of the scripture says we were created. Yeah, just on a silly note. If evolution were true, it says that things would always evolve and things would because of a certain need and that certain need would dictate that there's changes and mutations that take place to improve. Well, if that's the case, why don't moms have six hands now? Okay? Why, why doesn't that work? Look, on a serious note, 
Are scientists now, with more understanding, are they coming to a point where they realize, wait a minute, that evolution has so many holes in Royal Society of Britain, oldest, uh, oldest scientific community here in the world, in the modern world. In 2016, excuse me, they got together and they had this big debate, intelligent design versus evolution. And their conclusion was evolution doesn't answer the questions as well as intelligent design. And they pointed out that even, this is a secular group, they pointed out that the complexity of, of the organisms... In that discussion, they talked about your eyes. They talked about your ears. They talked about the complexity of our brains. How could that just randomly happen as suggested? Even these secular scientists concluded, and they said, you know, the differences in these gaps that evolution says, oh, there's the missing links, there is no proof of any missing link. And after all this time, uh, there's nothing that would show a jump from one, one species to another. The novelty in, of how things were designed. The better answer is not evolution, but intelligent design. I'm not saying they've come to a point where they admit that Jesus Christ is the creator. But even, even some of the scientific community today is catching up to the reality that, you know what? Evolution is a crock. That there was a God, and by the way, who knows this? Everyone. Because they can look at creation and they see inherently, innately, there is a mighty God who created. So we have this idea that's suggested in this one passage, in this one verse, this deep theology behind his purpose, that Jesus Christ is the creator. He said, it's pointing out. Jesus is before all things, pointing out he's above all things, pointing out Jesus was actively involved in creation. Therefore, what does this all mean? Understand that from Greek philosophers of this region, they would look at something and they would want to know what power, what designer, uh, uh, of who made this and keeps this going. He answered every one of those philosophical questions in this one verse. He basically has said to us, Jesus is the planner of creation, the power behind creation, the purpose for creation. And not only creation as a whole, but of you and me. Conclusion, application, it's at the end of verse 18. Therefore, because of this, Jesus Christ should have all preeminence. Jesus Christ should be exalted. Jesus Christ should be lifted up. Why? He's supreme. He is absolutely superior. But he goes on, he says, not only is he the supreme creator, he's the maintainer. Notice what he says in the next phrase. He says in that next phrase that we read in verse 17, he's before all things, and by him all things consist. Very clearly what he's talking about is Jesus Christ keeps things together. The word consist means to hold together. It means to stand together. And he's using a verbiage that holds this way. He has and continues to hold everything together. Very clear in the, in the verbiage in the original tongue. Jesus Christ is the reason that things maintain. You know, of all people, of all generations, we should understand this better than anybody else. We have seen in modern history what can happen when atoms are split. We can see what happens when men say, oh, we've been able to all of a sudden dissect on the nuclear level. We've seen the, the power behind. What keeps the nuclear cluster together? What keeps that so it doesn't, on its own, implode or explode? This passage tells you, Jesus Christ. Scientists say they don't understand what keeps everything from not, it's Jesus Christ. In fact, what keeps the tides in their sequence? What keeps the moon at its specific spot from earth? Why doesn't it go skewered out of, out of control? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ that keeps things in orbit. Why does the earth not all of a sudden sometimes sputter and have you know, one of those moments where power is gone and all of a sudden, oops! Why, doesn't, why is the tilt, an unexplainable level of tilt... Why is it at that tilt, who put it there? Who keeps it there? If the earth could tilt at one time, why doesn't it tilt some more? Who does all that? L listen, friend, young person, listen. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that does this. Uh, hey, 
Who keeps gravitation in place? Ooh, doesn't that look like fun? Wouldn't it be fun not to have gravitation? Yeah, that would be kind of cool for a little bit. Think about if there was no gravitation. How would you eat? How would you go in, do things in the bathroom? Shower, whatnot? How would you get about? Oh, I would just... Then what would happen to your body in time? Do you realize that when people go into space, the biggest problem in space when they're in a non-gravitational environment is the muscles deteriorate? We would become like one of those cartoon features where everybody riding on that spaceship become fat and sassy and can't move. We would die. What keeps it in place so that our cosmos isn't chaos? It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that keeps some order that we understand in nature, in creation, who keeps the process of your growth going from baby to adulthood. Jesus Christ is the reason. Very clearly, here we have it. He's creator, he's maintainer. He, he goes on, we, we've talked about these things. I, sh- I left off redeemer, but redeemer, revealer, creator, maintainer. But then he goes on, he says, he's also the head of the church. He gives him another reason why you, of all people, you who are born again, all the others have been talking about the peoples as a whole. Now he gets to you and I and plunges this on, upon our lap. And he says, hey, listen, Jesus Christ is the supreme head of the church. There are multiple titles in scripture for Jesus Christ in relationship to his church. We could talk about some of those titles this morning. We could talk about the fact that he is called the owner, the builder of the church. We could talk about the fact that he is the foundation, the chief cornerstone of the church. We could talk about his title that he is the lover, savior of the church, and that men should mimic him and emulate him in their relationship to their wife the way that he did towards the church. But in this text, he highlights this title. He's the head. He's the head. What does that mean? He's the head of the church. Well, that drives us back to the thought that, by the way, he is the head, emphatic in this verse. He, he alone is the head of the church. A a body without a head is dead. There's no life. We understand that. If somebody were decapitated, they're done. You wouldn't walk up to them and say, hey, move it. Now they can't. We understand that head means leadership. Oh yeah, true. That within the function of the church, we as a group have leadership. We understand that as we function, I and staff, we have some facet of leadership. We understand that. But we are not the head of the church. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. The head of the church is not somebody that's sitting in some capital city. It is not some synod. It is not some group. It is not some patron. It is, it is Jesus Christ is the ultimate overriding head of the church. It's Christ. And he says, those of you who are believers, who are part of the body of Christ, understand that he is to be obeyed. Sir Leonard Wood, he was visiting the king of France. They had a wonderful supper together. And the king of France enjoyed the company that they had and invited him to join him for lunch the next day. Wood never sent back a response. But he showed up at the palace for lunch. And when the king saw him, he said, Oh, I didn't know you were coming. I didn't get to your response. And Wood was kind of surprised. And he stepped back. He said, But sire, a king's invitation is never to be answered. It's to be obeyed. That's the way we should respond to the head of the church. We don't need to ask questions. We just need to obey. We need to follow him, giving him preeminence because he is the head. He is the one in charge. So we have all these different descriptions of Jesus, all with the ideas why he should be given preeminence. He's supreme. Reveals God like no other. Create all things like above everybody else. Maintains everything. He's the head. And let me give you the last one here. He's fully God. He's fully God. I'm jumping over a verse that I'll come back to tonight when we do the second part of this. But he says in verse 18, he's the head. Go down to verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And again, I want to take you back. And then not, not to show off any kind of uh, knowledge or lack of expertise in this area. But because it is important to understand the language that this, these phrases were written in. 
you and I, if we were living back in 64 AD and we read this letter in Colossae, we would really, really click on what it means, all fullness. It kind of, oh, okay, today. But back then, we would understand because we've heard it. We've heard the Gnostics using this, that false teachers have used this word in our church service multiple times. They have used the exact word that Paul is, use, is talking here. They have used it to describe what they have, what they are privy to. It's a word that, may, that in the original, we'd say it, pleroma. It has the idea of all divine power and attributes, all fullness. All that is God is what it means. All his power, all of his attributes, all of his knowledge. And they talked about having access to it. And Paul is writing and saying, wait a minute, Jesus is the pleroma. It is not some other spirit being. It is not something that these guys are getting in tune with. It's Jesus. Jesus is the pleroma. In fact, he uses a phrase here that is really interesting. I'm, t- I'm stuck, guys. You've got to help me out. He uses a phrase here that, um, that what happens, he says that all the fullness dwells in him. Did you see that in this verse? That all do, uh, in him all things, uh, there it is, in verse 12. Oh, they dwell. The word for dwell has the idea of abide permanently, permanently within that this fullness is there forever and ever. In other words, some were coming along and teaching, Jesus got God. Jesus, all of a sudden, at one moment, at his baptism, the Spirit came upon him, boop, all of a sudden he became God. Paul is saying, that's not true. All of God resided in him always. He was always God. He always is God. He never lacked anything. One author was toying with this idea, and he said, oh, hey, I wonder if Mary ever thought this through. That when she was raising Jesus, she thought, he's fully God. And if that's the case, hey, Mary, did you ever feel awkward when you were teaching how the world was created by him? As you were teaching him how he did it? Mary, did it ever occur to you that when you were praying, you were praying really to the person sleeping in the other room? Mary, Did you ever stop to think, that's God eating my soup? Mary, did it ever dawn on you that that he's God and you turned to him and said, Father, I like this one. Mary, did you ever count the stars with him and succeeded? Because he knows the number. Jesus is always God. He is fully God. Jesus, and he's writing to the church saying, he's your God. He's your creator. He's your maintainer. He's your redeemer. He's your head. And he reiterated exactly what was written in the gospel. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. That's this Jesus that we sang about earlier. When we sang, blessed be the name. When we sang, bow the knee. When we sang about Christ, he is king, he is Lord, he is God. It's easy to just say those words, to sing those words, but all of a sudden pause and think, oh, wait a minute. Am I giving him prominence or preeminence? Am I just mouthing something or is it going to really touch my life? Is it more than just thought? You go to the city of Rome and they still have this monument there. It was called the Malarium Aureum. And it was this pillar. We only see the base of it in the picture. But there was this tall pillar. And that old phrase, all roads lead to Rome, it was based on this. That from this centerpiece monument that was in the public forum of the empire, that everything was measured. All the roads were said to start here. So on this column, it would list all the major cities, and they would add them as they expanded, the different major cities of the empire and how far they were from this central point. This was the Greenwich time for mileage back in those days. Jesus Christ is to be the focal point of how we measure our life, how we live our life, what we do with our life. He is supposed to be the one who is preeminent. So you have to ask yourself a few questions. Are you relying upon him and him only for your salvation? 
Or are you adding baptism? Your, your own knowledge, your own good looks, good works. Your family, your parents. Are you relying upon him and him only? The majority of you would say, well, yes. But if you can't say that, that's why you need to be born again. You need to call upon him and him only to be your savior, not yourself. But then again, he's talking to Christians and he's saying, challenging, is he prominent or preeminent? And then I ask myself, okay, if he's preeminent, then he should be the first one we turn to when we have a problem. If he's preeminent, we should obey his commandments. When we read about baptism, we shouldn't debate, we should do. When we read about witnessing this week, when we're there and we have an opportunity to share the gospel or an opportunity to share, share the track, and we're debating in our mind, should I, shouldn't I? What will they say if I do? Ask yourself this question. Is he prominent or preeminent in your life? Preeminent enough that you will speak of him without embarrassment or shame. When it comes to how he occupies the time. Yeah, we, I'm glad we give him Sunday morning time. This is good. We're supposed to. But what about later on? This week? This day? This month? Is he prominent or preeminent? Who dictates your schedules? When, when you ask yourself this question, he's prominent, he's really prominent in my life, but this week, I really want to take time to read my Bible and to talk to Jesus and to pray, but I need to do this as well. And I've got this going. Is he prominent or preeminent that something else comes in the way and squeezes Jesus out? Is Jesus so preeminent that you are, during this week, you are going to say, you know what, I shouldn't have talked that way to my family member. I shouldn't have spoken that way to my spouse. I shouldn't have said that to my kids. But it's okay because I was angry. It's okay because I'm in charge. It's not okay if Christ is preeminent and you did wrong. If he's preeminent, you make a difference. You change. You act like him. You, you modify your, your speech. You love the way Christ loved your wife. You forgive the way Christ forgave. You all of a sudden, you, you treat one another and, and lift up one another the way Christ he took upon himself humility. He becomes our standard, our central point. Not just somebody that's prominent, that we got pictures and Bible verses on our wall, which is great and grand, and a Bible that sits there in the corner. That he may be prominent, but is he preeminent? That he controls. That he is who you follow. That you will talk about him to your family members. Well, if we do a family devotion time, it'd be kind of weird and awkward and it'd be embarrassing. Is he preeminent? Is he really that important? He deserves to be by everything we've seen this morning. Is he such, is he such a preeminent person in your life that you even bother to stop and ask, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus watch this? Would Jesus act this way? Would Jesus treat others this way? Is this the way Jesus would work? Is he, is he so preeminent that you parents would encourage your kids to first and foremost serve Jesus Christ with their lives? That you would say to them, you know, it's important, you need to provide for your family, you need to do things, but most important is you serve Christ. More important than income, more important than career, more important than your own pleasures. Make sure you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is he so preeminent that when you are work, at work this week, you make it your goal that you seek to please Christ, not the boss, because he's looking. So that you do what is right before Christ when you're dealing with your kids, not, I, I don't feel like it. 
So that you, when you decide what you do as a family, you are making sure Christ is preeminently considered in that situation. It's great. It's good to come. I'm glad you're here. I'm not trying to discourage you from not coming back, but I'm going to encourage you if the Lord tarries. Next time you come, is he preeminent in your thoughts? Is he going to be preeminent in your conversation? Or does the preeminent thing become how we disagree with the way other people are doing things? How we're upset about where the the country is going. D.L. Moody did something I hope I never forget. And this is a number of years ago. They held a first-time world religion conference in Chicago, and I think it was 83 or 89, somewhere in there, of the 1800s. They were holding this conference. And D.L. Moody decided to respond because there were so many coming in that had denied the Bible and denied other things. And so he and a group of preachers got together and he was talking about how I'm going to hold a campaign. I'm going to hold an evangelistic campaign in Chicago. We're going to rent out facilities. We're going to preach all the days that they're holding this world religion conference. We're going to hold and advertise this massive religious campaign and talk about Jesus Christ. The other preacher said, good. You make sure you point out all the errors. You make sure you point out all the heresies. You make sure you do that. And he made a comment. That he said, even though that's important to do, I want to magnify Christ so much and to show him as so great that they will be compelled to come to him because of his greatness and goodness. As a result, that was his greatest evangelistic campaign that he ever conducted by magnifying the grace and the holiness of Jesus Christ. When we come back to worship next week, Let's just not do motions. From our heart, let's make sure we make him preeminent. When we work this week, let's make sure that we can say we are closer to Christ than we ever were before because he is preeminent in my life. Father, I pray, help me, help my friends to do more than just make Christ prominent. Help us to make him preeminent in our hearts in our lives. And as we close with song this morning, help us to magnify Christ, to exalt him. Friend, you're here this morning, you're watching. If you have never called upon Christ, we would beg you to call upon him today. Those of you here in the auditorium, I would ask you to do this with me this morning. Close in a song. At home, close with me as well, singing a song of giving Christ the proper place that he deserves, the crown, the throne of our life.